the reading for this morning is uh, on page 972, if you're following in the uh, Bibles provided out the front, um, or page 2 of the leaflet. Reading from Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29, entitled, The Wise and Foolish Builders. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the God. And um, let me say, it's great to be among very familiar faces and friends, and some of you haven't changed that much at all. Uh, Phil Worley still looks like a 23-year-old and too young to be my surgeon, but there you go. Um, but sounding great, mate. I mean, yeah, just how uh, sounding great. Um, for those who know me, you'll know I'm, I'm sort of now um, wearing my hair in a different style these days, so uh, um, force on me, I should say. So uh, there we go. How about um, we pray and uh, we'll get into uh, this, uh, this terrific word from our Lord. Merciful Father in heaven, uh, your word is life. And so we pray now that you would mercifully plant your word deep within us. Uh, and please will you keep doing whatever it takes to make us wise for salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And for your glory... For our salvation and in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't normally use these things to preach, but we'll give them a go. So there you go. That's a blank one. Rightio. Now, who could take a punt on where this photo was taken by my son? Anyone? This can be interactive this morning, so let's practice. Yeah, which one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all the crow's gear. Give it away. Um, but um, never been... And uh, to be uh, there, 100,000 people, MCG, uh, and obviously your team playing, uh, and with your son. Uh, and it turned out one of my best mates who I lived with for four years was sitting right behind me with his family. Um, it, was, it was a perfect day. Like, it was an amazing day. I should say perfect day almost because about halfway through the second quarter, uh, yeah, it just turned into a shocker, actually, I'll be honest. Um, uh, but still, it didn't put a dent on uh, being um, uh, with my son, and, uh, who, who loves his footy, and uh, being in Melbourne with a couple of my girls. Um, it, it was just an amazing three days, but an amazing day. Um, I should say, my wife was having her perfect three days back here in Adelaide, <laughs> going to the Asia Festival with her best friend. They just, they loathe football. So it was just, and she said she was having the perfect weekend, so there you go. But see, they're a bit like diamonds, I reckon. We, we go through life and we collect these moments, these, di these perfect days, um, and they usually involve being with loved ones, 
don't they? Being with people uh, we know, we love, who love us. Uh, and, and just for the, for the moment, for that day, the strife and the stresses uh, that keep coming at us in life, the, the faults and the failures, they're sort of forgotten for a moment. And I wonder if, if, if these sort of uh, perfect moments in our life, these perfect days, uh, they're glimpses of really what we're made for, the goodness and the glory uh, of our God, the right relating we are made for with each other and with our maker. You'll notice there's a bit of an outline there, if you're welcome to follow along, and um, uh, the first one really is just to help us understand that Matthew's gospel, it's God is wanting to let us know how he longs for human beings to know and enjoy the love and the life of being in right relationship with him. Now, but actually, especially in eternity, Jesus teaches that heaven is going to be uh, even better than being at the MCG on grand final day. Uh, there's actually going to be no spare seat in heaven. Uh, heaven will be full. Uh, it'll be gloriously perfect day after day after day. Jesus, of course, is God turning up in person to ensure uh, that we arrive at that day with a genuine entry ticket. Um, it was quite amazing being outside the MCG uh, in the day leading up uh, to Grand Final Day. There, there were tens of thousands of people, probably as many if not more people outside than there were in the ground. The number of people wearing signs saying they're willing to pay ridiculous amounts of money. Um, coming up, please can I buy your ticket off of you. Uh, thousands of dollars. Uh, now, how is it that my son and I had uh, a rare ticket to the grand final, the most sought-after ticket in Australia? Well, they were generous gifts from my father. Uh, he had two tickets, and he decided months earlier that he wanted to give one to me uh, for, my, uh, for my 50th, and Aaron's for his 21st. And that, that's how we came to be there. It was a very different experience the week before, though, for someone called Robert Draper and his dad. They had bought uh, $35 tickets to the prelim final to watch Geelong and Richmond and paid $290 each for their tickets. And they rocked up, put them in the turnstile and got the shock of their life when they were refused entry because they had duds, they had counterfeit tickets, they were turned away. This passage we just heard read out just reminds us that God is desperate for that day to go well for people, that day when we will find ourselves standing before Jesus Christ and he will be giving his verdict on our lives. Standing at heaven's turnstiles, if you like, before God's Son to be judged how we've loved and responded to him and his word. And it's why the Father has sent his Son, of course, uh, and how kind of a Father to do it, to send his Son ahead of time before that day to let us know how it is we can be sure that the day is going to go well for us. It's really the context for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, to start, we're told that um, Jesus' popularity is on the rise very quickly. Uh, he sees the crowds. What does he do? He goes up with his disciples. The crowds follow. He sits down and he begins to teach them. Teach them about what? Well, Jesus' response uh, to people's search, to his popularity is always to teach and to teach about the greater righteousness, the greater righteousness 
that we need if we want to be guaranteed entry into the kingdom of God. So, for example, Matthew 5.20, we read that, For I tell you, unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes or the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, uh, Matthew 5.48, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so Jesus is very clear about the standard, the entry requirements that any of us need if we want to get into heaven based on our own merit, if you like. At the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, Cameron would have picked up on this last week, we heard that Jesus' exhortation uh, is for us to enter by the narrow gate, to get off the wide, easy, worldly road and to get onto the narrow, hard road that will assure us of salvation. It's not really a choice from Jesus, but a challenge. There really is, according to Jesus, only one way that leads to life with him. And the shock is that as Jesus, he's there, he's looking out on the masses of people, and he sees and says that only a few are finding this narrow road, this narrow gate that will lead to life and eternity with him. And so... Again, at the end of Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. The one who does my will of the Father in heaven. So what is that? Well, it's the singular message of the whole Bible. And certainly, uh, the message made extraordinarily clear in the Gospels. And at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we're repeatedly told that this greater righteousness we need to guarantee us entry, that it's a free gift from a loving God, a free gift to be received by faith in his Son. And it's, we're about to remember again, uh, that the Christmas narratives, uh, it's why heaven commanded Joseph, as he's um, expecting his, his, his newborn son, tells him, heaven commands Joseph to call uh, this long-promised son of God to give him the name Jesus, because the name Jesus means he will save his people from their sin. And a bit later, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, uh, Jesus uh, urges those within earshot to come to him. Come to me, he says, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, I I will give you rest. It's not come to me and I'll give you a list of rules. I'll give you a list of religious rituals. No, come to me and I will give you rest. I will give you salvation. Uh, Nothing is freer than a gift that is gladly given. And at the heart of Christianity, what, what is unique and so beautiful about Christianity, about Jesus, is just gladly accepting what God has gladly given. Isn't it? Christianity is gladly accepting what God has gladly given, which is his son. You know, the grand final tickets from my dad, uh, they were his, 100% to give. It was his idea, months out, to give them to Aaron, to give them to me. They were a gift undeserved, uh, gladly given, all costs paid, a gift guaranteeing entry into the MCG. And when it comes to 
guaranteed entry into God's kingdom to enjoy eternity with him. Jesus teaches us that he himself is this greater righteousness that we need. He himself is the perfect righteousness that we need. That as we receive him, God takes all of our unrighteousness and exchanges it for all the perfect, beautiful righteousness of his son. And so a Christian, God looks at a Christian, at a believer, and and what does he see? He just sees the perfect, beautiful, greater righteousness of his son. This sinless son of God who carried the crushing load of your sin, of my sin. And if Jesus has carried it away, then we we no longer need to bear it, do we? There really is no more sin and no more debt for our sin to carry, past, present, or future. All of your sin, all of my sin, all of the debt forever, it's dealt with, all paid for in full by Jesus in his cross. And so Jesus' invitation, his exhortation, is to come to me, he says, I will give you rest. Now, of course, we begin to experience the joy, the wonder of that rest now, uh, all the guilt, all the burden and the consequences of our sin taken away. But it's a rest that is to be re- realised, fully consummated and realised on that day when Jesus returns. And so a simple question this morning, the first one is, is it, do you know the joy of this rest yet? Are you ready to take Jesus at his word? And is it time to, to, to quit trusting in yourself, even a bit? Quit trusting in trying to be good enough for God. Because seriously, how, how can you improve on perfection? You try to improve perfection, it becomes imperfect, doesn't it? Uh, next Tuesday, the 31st of October, you'll find hundreds of thousands of, of Christians all around the world... Uh, celebrating um, what's called Reformation Day. It's 500 years uh, since that. They were really good-looking people back then, weren't they? But um, 500 years um, when a guy called Martin Luther, uh, he, who, who grew up, was raised as a Roman Catholic monk, um, when he nailed his 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg uh, in Germany to show the then Roman Catholic Church um, how it had seriously misplaced this good news of Jesus Christ. How the Roman Catholic Church back then had seriously messed up and muddied this free gift of grace at the heart of Christianity. And Luther's rediscovery was very simple. That the righteousness that we need, that he needed for entry, could not be earned, could not be merited, he could never be good enough. It couldn't be bought, it couldn't be bargained for, but it was an undeserved gift to undeserving sinners from a loving and merciful God. We were to be received like a beggar. Received like a beggar with nothing to give in return. Simply by faith in Jesus. Luther's great verse that he meditated on for months and months and months was how it is the righteous could live by faith alone. Romans 1.17 And then he realised... But that is the only way the righteous can live, but by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a discovery I made as a 25-year-old, a freshly minted doctor, just having finished a six-year science degree. There really is is no greater discovery 
There'll never be a more a greater, more life-altering, life-transforming, world-changing discovery in medicine or anywhere than this discovery to discover God's grace for your life, the forgiveness that is alone available in Jesus, to live with this assurance of acceptance from your maker. There is no greater, more amazing discovery to be made. And God is desperate that people, he just doesn't want them to turn up with the wrong expectations, to be duped, um, to be expecting entry when they've been sold a pup, sold a lie, to rock up with the wrong expectations before Jesus. You're in for the greatest shock of your life, which I think is why Jesus lovingly finished his sermon talking about two builders. So that second point, God's wisdom and the only way that leads to life. Let's just uh, briefly refresh ourselves uh, with these words. Let's just hear it again. So um, if you've got a, you've got a Bible, uh, Jesus says that um, at the end of this Sermon on the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine, who does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. Now notice, again, that Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, uh, talking about the law and the prophets. And yet he finishes on the note of wisdom exhorting us to be like a wise person who builds their life, their relationships, their values, their choices, their decisions, who builds them on Jesus' word, the Bible. Why wisdom? Well, just think about it with me. Um, life's all about relationships, isn't it? Have you ever tried to do a relationship only according to rules? They don't tend to last long or go very well. Such is life in this messed up world uh, where we, we fault and we fail, we let one another down. We need more than rules, don't we? Um, we need wisdom. We need wisdom in a world where selfishness and sin and death are rules. Jesus is God's wisdom in total, in person. Good news for bad people. Grace for sinners. Hope for failures. Wisdom for idiots like me. Our oldest daughter at the start of the year moved to Sydney with her husband to, to live and work there. Um, and uh, so she stopped calling home. We never see her. Oh, no, no, she hasn't. She calls home almost every day, <laughs> comes home a lot. Um, it, it's like that when, when you're part of a family. Uh, you need to keep relating, keep communicating, keep listening, keep talking. It's what God's children do as well. See, let me ask you a question. What would you think of myself and Aaron if we'd given in to the temptation and sold our grand final tickets for $5,000 each? Um, you think, well, hang on a minute. How, how can I sort of trash my dad's gift like that? How can I trash the relationship with my father like that? How could I reduce my dad's love and generosity to money? It's dishonouring. It's thankless, it's, it's offensive. Uh, and if we had done it, I suspect it would have put a serious dent in the relationship with my father and Aaron's relationship with his grandfather. And so the warning is, don't be like, uh, from Jesus, as, as we think about living 
as God's children, is, is don't be like, and the word literally is the word for moron, don't be like a moron, okay? Don't be a fool, do not be an idiot. Don't be like the person who heard or knew of Jesus' words, but didn't act on them, didn't put them into practice, didn't do them. It's thankless, dishonouring, offensive. It's like us choosing to not go to the grand final to use our tickets, or worse, to sell them. Jesus is just saying, look, you treat any relationship, you trash any relationship that's been given to you like this, there's going to be disastrous consequences, aren't there? And this is why God made sure the story of God's Old Testament people was written down. We're told it was written down for Christians, for us. Because while it tells an amazing story about an amazing God of grace who forgives over and over and over and over again, it sadly tells the story of a people of God who were fools, who kept ignoring God's word, not putting it into practice, uh, who became complacent towards their God and stopped trusting him and his word for their lives. Uh, if you're a teacher, you're a lecturer, or just if you're a parent, actually, we know all about passive listening, don't we? It's uh, turning up but tuning out. It's, um, you know, leaving school, the classroom, uh, leaving church and not remembering what was said. It's listening that actually has no intention of changing the way you think or you speak or you feel. It's whoever hears these words of mine, says Jesus, and does not do them. What did you notice about um, that word of, from Matthew 7? Uh, we've got two builders. Both build a house. Let's assume they're exactly identical. Both experience the same storm. But it's only because Jesus tells us, reveals to us, that they've built on different foundations. It's true, isn't it? If you, uh, um, houses, once they're built and the garden's done, you can't actually see the foundation they're built on, can you? Uh, but over time, you can tell, especially if the big cracks start appearing or the house falls down in a storm. So again, how kind of God to turn up in person to tell us about this future day, this storm of God's judgment that is coming for all of us. Uh, to let us know, to give us the heads up, and not only that, to provide all that we need to survive the storm, to provide all that we need, all the grace, all the instruction, his, his spirit, his word, to be wise builders so that we can live and approach that day with a confidence, with assurance that it's going to go well for us. Um, biblical wisdom Someone wrote, biblical wisdom is when we outgrow our misconceptions about how we think life should work and we begin realising that God's word, the Bible, is actually how God built life and relationships to work. So we need to keep humbling ourselves. God is wiser than us. God is right, always. And Jesus wants us to know that how we respond to his word and wisdom is a matter of life. As I said, I've got two girls. Um, they're uh, just finishing off year 12, and they've loved English this year. Um, and, and they're actually going to do really well in English. Uh, all because, really, of uh, not just how hard they've worked, but Ms. Borgen-Smith, their English teacher, uh, because she loves English and she loves her students. 
always going the extra mile for them. She just is desperate for them to do well. She wants them to do well on that day at the end. And shows he's invested in them, uh, looked at how many drafts and, and, and tried to improve their work because she's just so, she wants them to do well. Uh, that, that's like Jesus here. Hasn't just come to save us. He, he, he's, he, he, he wants us to do well. That's why he's always instructing us. Uh, trying to show us where we're sort of sinning in our lives, that we might repent, keep turning to him, keep coming to him. He wants us to do well now, to enjoy and revel in the life that we have in him, while having the confidence that it will go well on that day. You know, I just keep hearing, what is it, 16 years up here, 17 years? How long have you guys been going for? You know, and you're still going, and you're going well. Why is that? Because you've, you know... You've had a Chris Edwards and a Cameron Munro and a number of other um, loving pastors and leaders who've invested so deeply and costly and sacrificially. They want things to go well for you. So much to give thanks for, so much not to take for granted. There are two words, two wisdoms constantly competing for our attention and our affection, aren't they? There's the, the wisdom and the word of the world and those here in Scripture. Um, Nicholas Carr, he's a guy who wrote an article in a book called Is Google Making Us Stupid? Um, Helps us to see how the information highway is changing us and perhaps how we need to change back. Here's a quote. Uh, Media are not just passive channels of information. They supply the stuff of thought and shape how we think. The net seems to be chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Once I was like a scuba diver in the sea of words... Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. We know what he's saying, don't you? Uh, When you work and when you're with people, do you have your phone with you? Do you have all your social media turned on, your email coming to your phone? They've done the research. Um, Every time that you stop what you're doing, look at your phone to check a beep or something that's come through. Um, It takes you two minutes to get back to the concentration level that you were at before you looked. You multiply that by 50 times in a day. You see, that's the world we're living in, isn't it? Um, When it comes to meeting God and his word, would you or someone who knows you well, would they describe you more like a scuba diver where you regularly spend deep and unhurried time in God's word? Or have you become more like a, a jet skier? skimming over the surface of God's word in the nooks and crannies of life. Um, this, um, every time I prepare to preach, I always just pick a book or a recommend from someone to help me think more deeply uh, about this word of God. And uh, this is one I really want to recommend. It's actually from Peter Adam. He's an Australian guy, he used to be the principal of Ridley College, hearing God's words. And it's, it's just a long, deep meditation from a a very wise, godly man about the Word of God and how we can actually be making more of it in our lives. And so just a couple of, if you like, insights. Um, in a world that wants to be increasingly spiritual but not talk about God, insights from, from Peter in the book that I think just sort of intersect with this passage today and hopefully will help us to be wise builders um, as we leave here this morning. The first insight has to do with uh, what he calls words and images, uh, or faith and sight. Uh, A Christian guy called Oz Guinness, he made this observation 20 years ago, which has to be even more truer today. 
that we are part of the generation in which the image has triumphed over the word, where entertainment drowns out exposition. We are not in the day of the word, but a day of the eye. What do you reckon? Something to talk about over morning tea. Can a picture, is, is a picture really worth a thousand words? What do you reckon? Well, again, interestingly, uh, a photographer who spent her whole life looking through a camera lens, she wrote a book about photography. She's called Susan Sontag. This is what she says. Photographs, which cannot themselves explain anything, are inexhaustible invitations to deduction, speculation and fantasy. Only that which narrates can make us understand. Can you hear what she's saying? So here's a question that is asked in his book, Peter Asks. Should we encourage the use of symbols or icons in our churches? Should we encourage the use of Bibles with pictures in them? Should we use cribs and mangers and other props at Christmas? Should we use Jesus videos for the benefit of the unlearned or the illiterate? There's pros and cons for, for both, of course. But his Christian historian, Alastair McGrath, he responds, he reckons, no, for we should not presume to be wiser than God. God who's told us very clearly in Scripture that we should never try to make any image or representation of him because it will turn out to be a lie. Just think with me. How can you make a representation or an image of a God who is all-powerful, who is invisible, who is holy, who is all-knowing, who is all-present, who is perfect in his justice, who is more merciful and loving and gracious than we can ever know or imagine. You see, any attempted image will only distort, misrepresent and in the end contradict the truths that come to us in Scripture. Have you ever wondered why it's only Christianity, only Christianity, where God ensured we have no image of Jesus? No one knows what he looks like. He ensured that we do not know where his empty tomb is so that we could not pilgrimage there. How wise of God to give us the inspired eye and ear witness accounts of the prophets and the apostles in the Bible. And Jesus says at the end of the Bible that, that is, this is enough. Here is the complete and full revelation of God. Do not add to it or subtract to it. I wonder if this is why the Apostle Paul characterises our existence now as Christians as, as being away from the Lord in 2 Corinthians. He says that we walk by faith now in the word and not by sight, you see. We walk by faith in the word now because then we will live by sight. The shape of authentic biblical spirituality is trusting obedience in the scriptures, always with the promise that we will live by sight when Jesus returns. And this is why a spirituality that seeks to replace sound by sight, seeks to replace word by image or symbol, is not only misleading, but foolish and dangerous and ultimately dishonouring to God. 
Jesus said to a doubting Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And here we are, some of the blessed gathered together who have not seen the beauty of Jesus, but yet have come to believe in Jesus through his word. Brings us to the second insight uh, to help us hopefully build wisely, which is just the the power of words. Um, And this sort of conversation that's increasing not just outside our churches but inside our churches where we want to sort of put a dichotomy or separate sort of mind and heart um, when we talk about the things of God and spiritual things. See more and more I don't know about you but I hear people saying saying things like this um, about how, how they're making decisions. I really feel that God is saying this to me. It's a subtle shift um, from where we actually hear God's word. Uh, Is it in here? Or is God's word an external word, a word that is outside of us, beyond us, that comes from the living God to us? See, it's a subtle shift where we want to equate spiritual matters with feelings in here, that if we are feeling it, it must be from God. But quoting the Old Testament, Jesus says that there's only one sort of authentic biblical spirituality. It involves loving God and his word with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength and with all of our mind. All of our mind. The idea of disengaging our minds and feeling our way towards God is foreign uh, to biblical spirituality and more like the spirituality of the nations. So Martin Luther... On the one side, he had the Roman Catholic Church, who wanted to suggest that the most authoritative word in the world came through the church via the Pope. But on the other side, he had this group of romantics called spiritual enthusiasts, who wanted to discount the scripture as the authoritative word, and it was the word inside that had the, it came to via the emotions and the experiences. And of course, today, much of the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, um, is, is, is like the legacy of these spiritual enthusiasts. I want to suggest uh, that to be truly spiritual, we need to disengage the mind and get in touch with God in here. The Bible never, ever splits mind and heart. Never. Just like the Bible never, ever splits spirit and word always talks about the two in the same breath. The Bible is at the same time an intellectual word, a clear word, and an emotional word. It's external to us, always addressing the whole person, always addressing the whole person. So let me ask you a question. When were were you last really, really convicted of some sin in your life as you read the Bible or you heard it preached. To, to really know you're stuffed up with someone, I do it about five times a day with my family, don't know how often you do it, but you know, to really, and to be convicted of that, and to say sorry, you know, that's an incredibly emotional all of person experience, isn't it? One of the most truly authentic spiritual experiences we can have is to be convicted by the Spirit of God of things in our life that are unworthy and dishonouring towards God. 
and of the, the even more beautiful and wonderful and greater experience of God's word is to experience his forgiveness, his grace, to have the weight, the guilt, the burden of the guilt take, washed away, to really know that it's been dealt with. Or to really experience God's word when he says that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing, not even death. Nothing. I want to suggest there is no greater, more powerful spiritual, intellectual and emotional experience than hearing and experiencing the word of God in our lives. Which briefly brings us uh, to the last observation. Um, How are we going receiving or avoiding God's words? God's intention, you know, the parable of the sower, God's desire is always that the seed falls in rich and fertile soil, that we're we're bearing fruit, uh, that our lives are being changed, uh, that we're being habitual and and unhurried as we sit ourselves in in the Word each day, as we marinate ourselves in in the Word, giving time for the Spirit to find us out through His Word, to convict us, to, to help guard against superficial engagement, to forget what we've read. Um, you know, where are we being choked by the things in our lives, the stresses and anxieties? We need that encouragement, that strengthening constantly. I don't know what sort of personal habits you have. My personal habit is to get up early, uh, to make a good coffee, uh, and I just follow the, read the Bible in a year in the back of my Bible, usually about five or six chapters a day. Write a psalm a day, I read a chapter of Proverbs a day because I'm a bloke. I need God to hammer his wisdom into me. Um, it was good for Martin Lloyd-Jones and Billy Graham. They did it all of their life. I've started doing it this year. I wish I'd started about 20 years ago. But anyway, um, that's, that, that's my habit. Uh, Gita's is a bit different. I have a brekkie with her books and Bible, and she writes a journal and all that sort of stuff. Um, a bloke who I've just had the pleasure of burying, Roy Wilby, uh, who was a wonderful saint, uh, dealt with a lot of stuff in his life. He used to walk his dog and listen to the audio Bible, chapters and chapters at a time. It's just doing whatever you need to do to be a wise builder. I want to finish with this question that's from um, someone I've been reading um, uh, in, in the book of Proverbs. He asks this, who are the wise? Who are the fools? Who really are the winners and losers in this world? Whose stock is rising? Whose stock is falling? How you answer that question reveals everything about you because how you answer that question reveals how you see the cross of Jesus, how you feel about that crucified man. Sorry, it's cut off here. (laughs) How you feel about that crucified man reveals who you are at your deepest core. It reveals whether you and I are like a wise or foolish builder. The Bible teaches us that Jesus' stock has risen and is rising. And will come again in resurrection power. And Jesus promises that the wise who are hearing and heeding his words for their life, building wisely in our relationships, making wise choices, we will definitely inherit eternal life with Christ, who have come, come to the Son, and know his rest for their lives. Well, I reckon that's something worth being a part of. And uh, why don't I pray and ask God to help us to, uh, to be wise builders. Loving Father, we just um, give thanks uh, for your Son. Uh, thank you as, that as we look to him and your word, we are reminded constantly that you've done it all. 
that in his cross uh, sins are forgiven, the debt is paid in full once for all time, uh, that uh, we really have been uh, saved and adopted as children of yours and so Father help us to live as your children, Uh, please grow us in love for your word, give us to self-control and um, the repentance that we need to regularly be sitting deeply in your word like scuba divers rather than jet skiers. Father, please do all that it takes to help us to endure to the end, to that day of your coming, where we will hear those good words, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.